Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis-Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page, and if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Joe Francis Penn, and in today's show, I talk to Ben Aitken about his experience in Poland. Sometimes interviews go in a different direction than you expect. And this conversation with Ben is less about places to visit in Poland and more about the mindset shift that can occur if we stay longer in somewhere new. Curiosity is one reason to travel, but it also helps to challenge the attitudes about a place that we might have inherited from the media or other people's opinions or the way things used to be. And Ben mentions how easily these stereotypes can be blown apart when you live somewhere for a while and see behind the cultural assumptions. He also says if you've a mind to, you can find beauty anywhere, and celebrating ordinariness is just as important as visiting the highlights of a country. I think this attitude has become even more important in 2020 during lockdown, and in fact we recorded this while Ben was in Australia, caught by the closure of borders and cancellation of flights. And even as lockdown has eased as I record this in early August 2020, there is still a restricted ability to travel. So this appreciation of ordinariness is even more important. So I have walked the same path along the canal or up Salisbury Hill near me almost every day for the last four months. And this is possibly the most time I have ever spent in one place for many years, as in I normally would be off traveling, doing something, even just going to London for a couple of days or just getting away. And I haven't been away like many of us. And at first, when this all happened, I raged against the inability to escape. But since then, it settled into contentment as I began to notice the smaller changes over time. The hedgerows blooming, the ducklings and the cygnets being born and growing up and how the light changes over the different times of day when I walk and the smell of wild garlic, the sound of the birds singing. And I hope that you have been able to find beauty in the ordinariness around you during this time. So I also love Ben's quote from the book, I love others, I am one. And I think many of us who find home in different places and who love to experience the world understand this feeling. That sense of otherness is felt more strongly when we travel and we're the outsiders. And I like to feel that way because it means I'm learning about a new place. I hope to feel that way again soon. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy the interview. Ben Aitken is a freelance writer, playwright, and the author of three travel books. Today, we're talking about his book, A Chip Shop in Poznan, My Unlikely Year in Poland. Welcome, Ben. Hello there. Hey. Yeah. I should say good day because I'm down under. Locked down under. Locked down under indeed. But you are a Brit. So let's just start with the question, why Poland? And what sparked that trip in the first place? What sparked that trip? Curiosity. So it was a bit of Alice in Wonderland style adventure down an unusual eastern rabbit hole. Of course, 
a lot of Poles had moved to the UK since 2004, so there was a new relationship with the country and a lot of the coverage of the country and the people was limited, sometimes negative. And I'm always in the mood to challenge the sort of received wisdom and go on an adventure and hopefully return with a bigger picture and a bit more understanding. I mean, we get a lot of international listeners to the show who might not, I guess, understand how Polish people are part of life in the UK. I mean, you and I both being British, even I live in Bath in the southwest, we have a Polish supermarket. Generally, a lot of British people will know Polish people. But to anyone listening who might not sort of understand how culture works, explain a bit more about, you mentioned a few years ago, why people started coming here. So 2004, Poland, along with a few other countries in that part of the continent, joined the European Union, which enabled its people to work and live in any of the 26, seven member states of the European Union. And an awful lot of them, perhaps over a million, it's difficult to exactly, chose to come and live and work and study and bring up children in the UK. And that's a significant number. It, Polish is now the second most spoken language in the UK. And that happened quite quickly. And it was quite exciting, to be honest. Other people reacted in a different way to the migration, as, as I'm sure you know, and, and as I'm sure people can understand. You know, it doesn't always strike people as a good thing or a progressive thing. But for me, it is those things. It is good and it is progressive. And it just gave me new things to consider doing and new places to consider looking at. And I guess we should also say we're recording this in June 2020. Officially, Britain has left EU. Though, of course, you wrote the book over that period, didn't you? I read it quite recently. Going through that a time of Brexit is kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting element of the year and the narrative and the journey. I didn't, I knew that Britain was about to have a referendum. I didn't expect the result would be that Britain would be leaving the European Union. That happened about a quarter of the way into my year in Poland and did alter things a little bit. Prior to the referendum, the Polish people had responded to me exclusively positively. After the referendum, less exclusively positively, because the way that that result was interpreted, rightly or wrongly, was that the Polish people were no longer welcome in the UK, because it was interpreted that the UK wanted to leave because they were fed up with the amount of Polish people. Of course, that's a very simple and unrealistic way of looking at it. But nonetheless, that's one of the messages, one of the sentiments that came through to Poland and registered with the people there. So all of a sudden, somebody from the UK in Poland wasn't as well received. And we'll circle back to the European stuff in a, in a minute, but let's come back to the book. So one of the quotes from the book, I'm going to give a few quotes, it's a great book. One reason for moving to a new place is to challenge one's attitudes and intuitions, to destabilise one's common sense. So, which I thought was great. So what attitudes and stereotypes did you overturn as you did your trip? Yeah, I should say that the way I was often destabilised in Poland was by drinking too much of the lovely vodka they have there. But <laughs> that's a different conversation. You know, it's not difficult to have one's understanding of Poland and Polishness completely blown apart because the common wisdom, the shared understanding is, is very limited, very narrow within Britain. And that's our fault and that's to our disadvantage. So the point is, when I got to Poland, it was all hard or long before... All of my modest preconceptions were blown apart because it's not only high-rise Soviet-style flats. It's not only strong men working on construction sites. It's not only people drinking vodka and eating gherkins. Of course, you get the wide 
range of humanity on every street and in every part of the country. It doesn't necessarily have to be that resemble a rainbow, but you can still get that variety of humanity in any country. And that's what struck me within probably hours, days of arriving in Poland, that it's just as various and heterogeneous as anywhere else in the world. Mm. So you mentioned there the high-rise Soviet-style flats, and I do think that Eastern Europe, for many people, brings to mind those sort of grey Soviet buildings. So what are some of the beautiful or different places that you visited? Well, for me, beauty can be anywhere. It's not necessarily a terrific landscape or beautiful old town like Krakow. I'm reminded of something Sally Rooney was going on about just the other day, celebrating ordinariness. Her book that's been incredibly popular and now the TV series Normal People, it's there in the title of the book. You know, she's drawn to and in many ways fascinated and in love with the concept of normality and ordinariness and going after it and uncovering parts of it and elements of it which shine and are brilliant and are perhaps unsung and unrecognized. And with Poland, it was spotting the 10 men digging a hole on my street and seeing that one of them was sort of thoughtfully pondering a display of dresses in the shop across the road. And it was towns like Łódź, which used to be big manufacturing industrial places, which now are struggling or attempting to find a new way and a new identity. And it's also the mountains and the beaches and the old towns like Krakow. And it's also in the people, the beauty. It was the students I taught and some of their witty responses. It was the people I lived with and their warmth and their kindness. And if you've a mind to, you can find beauty anywhere, I think. And I agree with you on one level, but I also challenge it because I don't think most people travel for ordinariness. But that is interesting about the type of books you write, because you're quite different to the sort of adventure travel people or the Instagram travel people. So how do you think that King Beauty and Ordinariness can be done by people who say are only there for a shorter amount of time? Or are there ways that I guess more tourists could experience Poland? I think there definitely are. I think you're right to counter me and say most people don't want that sort of stuff. Most people want the highlights and the hotspots and the stuff that they can share and be proud of and what have you. And there's value in seeing those things and experiencing those places. But for me, rightly or wrongly, I'm just inclined to a different type of brilliance and beauty. Yeah, I would say don't take a guidebook with you for a start. If you go to a place, consider going to somewhere that's less popular, less celebrated. Poland is a good example, but maybe not Krakow or Warsaw. Maybe go somewhere like you could go to Łódź. I just mentioned Łódź. You could go to Białystok, whereas you can go to Szczecin even, you know, places that aren't accustomed to receiving attention. They're just doing their ordinary thing. I promise you there is as much there's as much stuff there that's of interest and of value than anywhere else. And another tip would be jump on a tram or a public bus and just sit there for two hours. Let the bus or the tram take its entire course. Go to the terminus, let it turn around, stay on it. You're not going anywhere. Just look out the window. Look at the other people. Just get a real sense of the whole place where you are. Because a town, a country... Wherever, it's the sum of its parts. It's not sum of its parts, if that makes sense. And 
I enjoy that. I find it sort of meditative, just sitting there on a tram and watching rather than hurrying around trying to see all of the cultural highlights in 45 minutes or whatever. But I can't prescribe to anyone the perfect vacation trip, city break or whatever. You've got to do do what appeals to you, but also, you know, perhaps have an open mind and jump on a bus or a tram sometimes. And it's interesting, those places that you mentioned, for example, being off the general tourist route, what is the language situation like in those types of places in Poland? Because, you know, if you go to Krakow, as you mentioned, you'll get menus that will have English or signs in English and people might speak English with tourists. But if you go out of the way like that, is it sort of primarily nobody speaking English or how did you get on with the language? Well, I was learning the language, so I was always able to at least make my basic needs understood and heard. But you can go to just about anywhere in Poland and half of the population of that city or town will speak some English. 20% of that population will speak it well and 10% will probably speak it better than you. That's what I found. And it's to do with age as well, because... Before 1990, the second language being studied in schools was more likely to be Russian. And now it's more likely to be English or German. And so the millennials in Poland and the ones coming up beneath them, the Generation Zs or whatever they are, you know, they'll have English, you know, in their back pocket, no problem. And so I don't think it would be an issue for tourists. And if you learned a dozen phrases on the plane over or the train over, however you're coming, They're always good icebreakers. That's what I did when I went to Poland for the first time. You know, I learned a few phrases. One of them was, I love you. And I was just using that as an icebreaker. I'd say it to the bus driver and to the receptionist at the hotel and the barman and everything. And if nothing else, it just gets you chatting and laughing and connecting. Yes. And that makes me wonder about what would the Polish stereotype of the eccentric British traveller? (laughs) Did you come up against any stereotypes in the other direction? I did, yeah. Now that I come to think of it, a lot of Polish people of my age and younger thought I was there for the Polish ladies because they have a reputation of being unusually attractive, the Polish ladies. They thought I was some sort of romantic tourist or whatever. (laughs) I was out to find my partner, my wife, my husband, whoever, and They couldn't quite believe that I was actually there to work in a fish and chip shop for the minimum wage and go to places like Woods and Białystok and Szczecin. But on the whole, I was well received and and people were good and kind to me. That was good. Uh, And you mentioned that you worked in a chip shop. And of course, that many people think of that as quite British anyway, sort of fish and chips. But you have mentioned the lovely vodka. So what are some of the Polish food and drink options that you enjoyed? I ate very well in Poland. What did I enjoy? Well, I must mention pierogi because that's a big deal in Poland, the dumplings. And yeah, say a bad word about the Polish dumplings at your peril because they're very important. And I find them jakotako, which means like average, okay, just all right. They're nothing special. And what else have you got? You've got, there's something called smalets which is bad on paper, but good in the mouth, if you know what I mean. It's a terrible idea. It's basically just lard or fat, but they whack it on some bread with a gurk, and that turns out really good, actually. But don't eat too much of it, otherwise you might not be able to return to your home country. (laughs) Certainly not in the same shape you left it. 
And other than that, bigos, that's a lovely national stew, which has got lots of uh, different meats and lots of cabbage. And it takes about 16 months to, to stew. And that's delicious. And I actually included a recipe for bigos in my book because I was seeing how many cookbooks were flying off the shelves of bookshops. And I thought, well, what have they got that my book hasn't? Well, I suppose recipes. So I just slipped one in for the fun of it. And so there's a recipe for bigos. And that was quite an adventure that day, going out to buy all the ingredients and then coming home and then making a mess of the national stew. <laughs> yeah, my husband is half Hungarian, so I know about the pierogi and the dumplings. And Eastern European drinking schnapps, some form of fruit schnapps, is often common. Is that something that happens in Poland as well? Schnapps, I didn't see much of that. There's lots of flavoured vodka. So just about every flavour of vodka you can imagine is available. Cherry, plum, banana, pineapple, cheese and onion, whatever. (laughs) But schnapps, no, I didn't come across schnapps. I did pay attention to what the Poles were putting down their necks. So I think I would have noticed it, but could be wrong. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned before about not taking a guidebook and another quote from the book says, I tend to think that too much preemptive research takes away some of the joys of travel. Surprise, revelation, chance. Now, I am someone who plans a lot. This challenges me as a traveller. But I wonder, what are some of the joys, those specific joys you mentioned while you were away? They were quite modest joys, to be honest. They were sharing a flat with Poles, who were strangers at the beginning and who later became friends and two of them are now living in London. It was cycling home after a long shift at the chip shop in the summer going across the River Varta on my bike. It was talking to anyone I could in the garden or pub that I loved called Dragon in Poznan. It was just the whole thing was slightly joyous, to be honest. It was just being elsewhere and amongst others. And it was sort of the thrill you get when you go to a new place but somehow concentrated and lengthened at the same time. It's a difficult one to explain. You know, moving away to a new country, nothing about for a year, for no other reason than to have a look. It's really quite thrilling in quite a subtle and modest way. And I'm a big fan and a big admirer of Poland now, and it will be in my life for the rest of it. And I do encourage anybody listening this to this podcast to go and have a look at the country or... Just look at some of their literature or films. You know, got some cracking stuff and music, you know, put some Chopin on. Maybe avoid disco polo. That's a genre of music, popular Polish music that I can't quite fathom. There are many brilliant elements to the country. Yeah, it's interesting. I want to ask you then about your attitude to travel in general, because like you mentioned you're in Australia now and obviously you're British and you've lived in Poland and you write various books And as I mentioned earlier, they are quite different, I think, to normal, nor I say normal, like many travel books are more glamorous in a way. And you've actually got this, your latest book, The Grand Tour, which is about travelling with older people. Again, not something that many people would write about. So tell us more about how do you choose these more unusual trips and what does travel mean to you? It means an awful lot. And there's different ways to travel, of course. You don't have to jump on a train or a bus or a plane. Travelling can be sort of state of mind. There was a French guy that wrote a book a couple of hundred years ago called Travels in My Bedroom. He spent six weeks in his bedroom traveling. Now, there would have been a a lot of people able to do that recently because of the lockdown. They could have spent an awful lot of time investigating what was under their bed or on top of the cupboard or looking at the window frame or the, the tracery or what piece of furniture and really scrutinizing an environment is a form of travel. And also we travel through books, films, music. Of course we do. But 
Yeah, I like to go to places that may be a little bit unsung. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I've always been a bit contrary as well. My mother used to struggle to wash me in the bath because I insisted on being getting in the sink in the kitchen and being washed in there. You know, so I've always had that slightly contrary instinct to go against the flow, against the grain. And that ordinariness that we talked about before, going after some of that. And that's some of the energies and motivations that influence my thinking when it comes to writing and traveling. And the Grand Tour travels with my elders. That was you know, similarly, that was about looking at a demographic my elders, people, you know, 70 plus, and seeing what would happen if I just traveled with them. Would they kick me off the bus? You know, would they ignore me? Would they marginalize me? Would they trip me up with their cane? I don't know. I made an awful lot of friends and it was really fascinating and fun. And again, like going to Poland, you realize that we're all cut from the same cloth. We're all doing the same thing. We're just passing through. This is but a brief candle that's burning here for all of us. And yeah, just have a good time. That's always my bottom and essential motivation is just to have a good time and everybody's idea of a time will be different and just important I suppose to have a sense or an idea of what makes you happy and then go after that. And it is interesting because my mum, so she's in her 70s and she's single and she goes on these saga tours, which if anyone listening doesn't know, they are a tour company for over 50s. And my mum did the Silk Road last year, Uzbekistan and stuff like that with saga. And I was like, Mum, that's brilliant. And I'm almost looking forward to when I'm in that demographic. So I am interested because they don't actually allow people who are not in that age demographic on the tour. Did you just get on some a more broader trip or I'm wondering how they let you on? <laughs> I think that's disgraceful, actually, that they don't let younger people jump on board. That's ageist, officially. Um, <laughs> it totally explicitly is. Explicitly ageist, actually. But no, I went with a company called Shearings, who sadly were a victim to coronavirus only a couple of weeks ago. They collapsed because, you know, they've not had a booking for four months and everybody's asked for a refund and they've gone under. So I went with a company called Shearings. I went on six coach holidays, you know, four nights in seaside towns in the UK, went also to Italy. They cater for anyone, but they are very popular with people that are retired. So I was a big fish out of water, and I was the youngest by about 50 years on every (laughs) holiday. And yeah, I played a lot of bingo, and some of them were very suspicious of me and thought I had uncommon interests or whatever, and wanted to find a sugar mama. I don't know, you know, there was some interesting, some looks, interesting looks I got, but no, so I was able to, Shearings didn't mind any younger people going at all. And so that's how I managed to get on board. But as I said, sadly, they've gone bust now. So bust, rather not bust. Um, yeah, they've gone bust. I hope that somehow they're brought back from beyond the grave and revived and rescued because they deserve to be. So it's a fantastic way of traveling, not only the UK, but Europe. It's, I like that, the slowness of it, you know, being in a coach is... It's part of the experience, cutting across the whole of a country, seeing how the land changes colour and shape and getting on a ferry and going across to Ireland. I loved it. I loved it all. Mm. And it is interesting thinking as we are recording this in the pandemic is will people start to travel their own country more? I mean, I absolutely for myself, you know, I'm guilty in inverted commas of jumping on a plane to Spain more quickly than going over to Wales, which is only 100 kilometres away from me. We think, oh, we're going to have a weekend away. We generally think abroad. Whereas what you're talking about, I think this more domestic travel almost, or this more local travel may well have a resurgence because of the difficulties in international border crossings. 
Yeah, it may well, so long as the companies and the infrastructure is there. We need to think about how we can support and keep afloat such companies as Shearings in this really difficult period where there's not the cash going around. And whether that's the government intervening, I know the government can't intervene in, it, and in every situation, it just doesn't have the means. But it's going to be a damn shame when come the autumn, October, next year, next spring, when the country, Touchwood's got a clean bill of health and wants to get out and about, and those places aren't there anymore. Because for that period of time, financially, it was so hard that they died. We need to somehow get businesses through that because, yes, I suppose that instead of going on a coach holiday, instead of staying at a hotel, you can just drive there yourself and get an Airbnb. You know, that might be what actually happens. But that's not as good, and good in my opinion, as doing it the old-fashioned way and jumping in with a bunch of people you don't know and going for a holiday. Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll see. I don't want to be too uh, pessimistic about the situation. There will be more people traveling within the UK, but whether they'll be doing it in the old-fashioned ways, I don't know. It is interesting. And I mean, I've certainly been looking at a lot of photos and mean planning trips because planning trips is for me is fun. I am the guidebook type. But I want to circle back on Europe because you say in the book, I love others, I am one. And I feel like you and I have grown up as Europeans. I'm a bit older than you, but we've both grown up as Europeans. And now I feel like, and I certainly didn't choose not to be a European they took my passport away basically (laughs) i still feel european i want to jump on the ferry or the eurostar and go to france and i want to go back to spain and i for them like you said about polish people coming to the uk because they could then work in the european union and how do you see us people who value european identity how do we retain those values in a world where we're not officially that anymore? <laughs> I don't know, Joe. I don't feel any different for the referendum result, to be honest. I don't think I ever counted myself as European. I don't often count myself as British or English. People might say, where you're from, I'll say probably Portsmouth, because that's the environment I've spent most time in. I've always connected myself more broadly with what's going on on this planet, rightly or wrongly. Which is why when I discovered that a guy called Ludwig Zamenhof was Polish, this was the guy that invented the language of Esperanto, which was the universal tongue. And he wanted, this was back in the early 1900s when the world and in particular that corner of Poland was a very fractious and divisive and adversarial place. And part of the problem was people didn't speak the same language and instead of just moaning about the situation to a few mates at the pub, this guy said, well, how can we help people understand each other more and get along and see each other's needs and humanity? They need a shared language. And he went ahead and built one. Most people would be out playing football or going to the pictures or roller skating. And he's there building a language, for goodness sake. And very nearly it became the official language of the League of Nations, which was the predecessor to United Nations. But one country vetoed it, it was France. And if they hadn't have done that language, Esperanto, 100 years later, might well have been everybody's first, second language, so to say. And it might have been, it could have done some, you know, seriously good things on a sort of geopolitical level in that period as well, because speaking the same tongue helps, it really does. And coming back to the question about identity and things like that, I've mentioned it already in this conversation that we're all cut from the same cloth. You know, we might have different hairstyles and different sneakers on and 
and different senses of humor but we're all up to the same stuff and we've got the same basic motivations concerns needs wishes and dreams and that hasn't altered for me in light of the, the referendum result and yeah i'm disappointed i'm really disappointed that it's going to be a bit trickier to visit those countries and to live there and work there but i might dig around the family tree and see if i've got an irish grandparent or something and see if i can get a passport through them <laughs> No, that's fantastic. And I guess it comes back to curiosity, which is what you said at the top of the interview. And I feel as well, curiosity is what drives travel of any kind. And hopefully we can all continue to be curious about each other. So apart from your book, what are some other books about Poland you would recommend? There's a lovely book called A Country in the Moon by an author called Michael Moran. That's very nice, very different sort of travel book, uh, very erudite and talks a lot about classical music and Polish history. And there's a romance that runs through it as well. Very charming book, very elegant, very suave. And because it's those things and very different to my book, which is probably not elegant or suave or erudite, but everyone has a different motivation, different ambition when they set out to write a travel book. There's also a chap called Patrick Ney. He's probably the foremost British expat in Poland. And it's not a book, but he's got an awful lot of online content, blogs and videos. And it's all about that experience of being British in Poland and then British and turning into a Pole. This guy's now more Polish than John Paul II. It's ridiculous. And writing, you know, epic poems in Polish and they're getting four million views. He's a credit to the very concept of migration and celebrating other countries, other cultures. So I'd go after him. I'd go after Michael Moran's book. Um, but I'm sure there are other accounts of Poland. There's, of course, lots of Polish history to be read now by guys like Adam Zamoyski and, and Norman Davies. It's no secret that Poland's had a bit of a rough ride of it the last, well, 200 years. It's in a, between a rock and a hard place geographically, Russia on one side and well, the former Soviet Union on one side and Germany on the other. And if it wasn't those two playing up, the Swedes came down in the 17th century and conducted a genocidal campaign. Can you believe that? The Swedes of all people. If it That's wasn't interesting. <laughs> Yeah, in the 1650s, it was the Swedish deluge. They came down and wiped about 40% of the population out of Poland, which was nice of them. And if it wasn't the Swedes, they were coming up from the south. It was the Ottomans. There's a lot of history there, and it's not all cheerful. But it's a shame when that's the only thing, that's the only literature that seems to be connected and associated with Poland, because... Uh, in English, I mean, you know, in the Polish language, you can get as much literature and as a diverse range of literature and as anywhere else. But in the English language, it tends to be mostly history. Olga Tokarczuk, I hope I pronounced that right, is an exception to that rule. She just won the Man Booker International Prize for one of her novels, but she's got a few that have been translated brilliantly into English. And they're winning people over left, right and centre. So you go after her as well. So that there's stuff to look at. Fantastic. So where can people find you and your books online? If you want to find my books, just type in the easiest way is just to type in the name and they should be available online and in bookshops in real life and just pop into the library. And if it's not there, you can request it. You can always do that. The latest one, The Grand Tour, that's coming out in September and that's available to pre-order now. So Anybody that's keen to read about my experiences with my elders and playing bingo and learning one or two things from them, then please consider doing that. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Ben. That was great. It was absolutely my pleasure. I'll try and say that in Polish. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. 
I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.